0: So today's lesson is Lesson 8, although we broke up some of the lessons into multiple weeks. Um, this is Lesson 8. Last week we talked about the history of the Codex Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Sina- yes. That is what they call the manuscript, manuscript provenance. It's the history of ownership. And so we talked about how we came up upon these two... Manuscripts that, found, that form the foundation of our modern uh, modern critical text, the modern Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. We talked about the history of those, and today we're going to be talking about the character of the critical text. So we're going to be looking at some of the bari- what they call variances, and. Um, and, I, of course, I'm, I'm coming from a perspective that I, I don't think that these are, are good texts to, to follow. And I'll be explaining that in, as we go along. But let's go ahead and read 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. It says this, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh and is not of of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. Whereof ye have heard that it should come and even now already is in the world. So then, turn also to Second John, chap, chapter one. I guess there's only one chapter, uh, verses seven through eleven. Second, no, that's yeah. I, mean, I was starting to look at Third John. Second John, verse seven to eleven. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh this is a deceiver and an antichrist look to yourselves that ye lose not those things which ye have wrought but that we re, but that we receive a full reward whosoever transgresseth transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not god He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that uh, biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the warnings that John has given us, that we have examples, even in his time, of people who were denying that Christ came in the flesh and that Jesus was just a man and not um, the God-man, the Logos, the Son of God. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would guard and protect your your flock, that you would feed your sheep, you would protect your church from these false teachings, even um, as we see today um, that they are being reintroduced into our Bibles, we ask that you would protect us in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so the first variance that we're going to look at is John. Well, let me let me start with this question. John one one in Jehovah's Witness New World Translation says, "In the beginning was the God, was the Word." And the word was with God and the word was a God. Now see what they did there was they added the indefinite article A um, before God. They also did a lowercase God, um, lowercase G. Though this is recognized as a mistranslation of the Greek, would it be would it bother you to use such a Bible? Yes. yes. yes everybody would agree that what <clears throat> but why why are not let me play devil's advocate for a little bit here i mean isn't it i mean basically like saying god jesus is divine and <laughs> you're not buying it <laughs> <laughs> um i mean you could say it's a subset you know doctrinal uh um doctrinally it's a it's, it's watered down, but it's basically not taking anything away, um, you know, what's that? It's because he's saying, it's saying that he's one of many gods. Of many gods, and right. And god, god is the living one and one of only god Right, yes, yeah. Right. I'm with you, Gaylene. <laughs> Um, as we have learned, there are really only two versions of the Bible in the original languages, the Old Testament, and I'm simplifying this in a, in a sense, the Old Testament in Hebrew and, and Aramaic and the New Testament in Greek. There is the traditional text, and we've been studying this uh, for quite a while, of the New Testament, which is largely based on the Byzantine manuscripts and the critical text based largely on Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus. Last week, we traced the history of these two codices and found that they quite possibly are both forgeries. However, even if they are forgeries, they were forged from an ancient text of some kind, probably some Gnostic uh, tra- uh, manuscripts. They were able to get a hold of uh, in the Catholic Church and in the Eastern Orthodox Church. We talked about, um, you know, Mount Mount Athos and uh, or yeah. Uh, the island of uh, Mount Athos and um, how that how um, uh, Symeonides' uncle, I forget his name, um, uh, was a was a, a liberal uh, theologian who retired on Mount Athos, and how he probably had access to many of these Gnostic texts, um, and and, the, and who knows where they came from in the Vatican Library. Um, so according to Today we will evaluate the doctrinal character of, these, of the critical text. According to Hills, and I'm going to be drawing quite a bit of to uh, today's lesson from both of these books, um, Edward F. Hills and uh, Theodore Lydas. Um, and I'm going to quote here from, from Hills uh, on uh, page 173. He says, Thus we see that in the, it is unwise and present-day translators to base the text of their modern versions on recent papyrus discovered or discoveries or on Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. He calls them Beta and Aleph. For all these documents come from Egypt. In Egypt, during the early Christian centuries, were, was a land in which heresies were rampant. So much was this so that, as Bauer, 1934, and Van Unick, 1958, have pointed out, Later Egyptian Christians seem to have been ashamed of their heretical past of, the, of their country and have drawn a veil of silence across it. This seems to be why so little is known of the history of early Egyptian Christianity. In, in view, therefore, the heretical character of the early Egyptian church, it is not surprising that the papyrus um, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus and other manuscripts which hail from Egypt are liberally sprinkled with heretical readings so he 's saying basically this and we talked about how North Africa was kind of a haven what what came out of north africa we well, 've got Gnosticism and we have Arianism coming out of North Africa um, two very early church uh, heretical teachings now the the uh, the you know the the modern textual critics like Westcott and Horton and everything, they considered orthodoxy let me write this down because it's very important to understand they believe that orthodoxy let me, let me uh, I'll just say uh, how do I put this? They considered orthodoxy to be a revision of the text. When we talked about how orthodoxy came about through Antioch, um, through, um, uh, we've got two, two or three different ones. We've got, um, for example, uh, Athanasius, fought for years against Arianism, uh, which denied that Christ came, in, uh, that cr- Christ was divine, the divinity of Christ. Um, the modern critical text, uh, or the modern uh, textual critics, believe that orthodoxy revised the text. Okay. So what does that tell you about what they believe about the text? They believe the text to be largely that the original text manuscripts to be basically um, full of heresy, full of gnosticism. Whereas we believe, or those who hold to the providential, um, the prov- providential preservation of the scriptures, believe that this was not a revision, but was a purification. Of the text, they purified in the second and third century, and um, they did this. Remember, the original manuscripts were destroyed through the persecution of Diocletian. And We have records that they were burned in, in the public squares. The question is, how did they get those? How did they get our Bible, um, uh, the, the traditional text? How did they re- reconstruct those burned manuscripts back into the original uh, manuscripts? And and um, those who hold to the traditional s- text said, no, this was a this was done to not it was not a, a revision of the text, but it was a restoration of the text. It was reconstructing it from the um, uh, the purer manuscripts, the more carefully copied manuscripts. Um, and so that's. That's the two theories, right? You either believe that the early Bible, the very first Bible was Gnostic, or you believe the Bible to be Orthodox, and they restored the, the, the original text and, uh, and, and neglected these heretical readings. So um, let's turn in our Bibles. Well, there's a handout, and all of you should have a handout. Well, the first text that we're going to be going through is John 1.18. And you can see that I've, I've, I've done um, the New King James and the ESV kind of together to show you that this is impacting modern translations. ESV is considered um, one of the best. It, it is a very well-done translation. The problem was... Not with the translation. The problem was with the underlying text. They translated it from. So, so here, and even the New King James, the people that m- made the translation of the New King James Version did not agree with, the, the translators did not agree that they should be using the, the traditional text. They wanted to use the critical text, but they were hired to translate it from the traditional text. And so that's, uh, that's how we got the New King James. So the new king new king james um, i I'll read it in the King James, but I think all of other than this this one first one I'm going to be reading from the new King James the first first verse here John one eighteen says no man no man hath seen God at any time the only begotten son which is in the bosom of the Father he hath declared him and the e s v says what the only God okay so there's two different This is called a variance and it's in the Greek and I'm showing you the Greek so that you understand that this is not a translational issue. This is a manuscript issue. They didn't look at the Greek and say, Oh, some can translate it this way. And some can translate it this way. They looked at the, there's actually two variances in the actual Greek. This is from the critical text. And this is from the traditional text. It says, monogenes theos and monogenes uyas. Okay, which is sun. Sun is uyas, theos is God. Okay. So, so, <clears throat> um, uh, Letus devotes an entire chapter in his book on this one text. Okay. And he does a fantastic job of going back to the history of Gnosticism. Um, and I'm, as I get into this, this is going to get ugly. I'm warning you. It's going to it's going to seem strange to you um, how how messed up um, Valent- Valentinian Gnosticism is. But we're going to go into this because it's very un, it's very critical for you to understand all of these verses. What Gnosticism is, okay, specifically Valentinian Gnostics. All all of these um, all of both of these. Uh, variances have early, um, early witnesses. We have some manuscripts that are very early um, uh, that say Theos and some say very early say Ilios. And as we discussed um, in the past, uh, the church fathers usually, um, when they quoted from a Greek text, they usually quoted about where there are variances they about three three to one they quoted from the traditional text but there are you know egyptian especially the egyptian or north africa uh, church fathers that quoted from the the, uh, the critical text so um all have early witnesses those readings are among the valentinian gnostics uh, that that have the theos reading who was valentinius well, Valentinius lived from 100 to 180 AD, so he's very early, first century or second century Christian. He is a Gnostic theologian. He taught first, and guess where he taught first? Alexandria, right. Um, and went to Rome in 136, where he founded a school. He is also credited with having founded Valentinian Gnosticism. So he has infected not only Alexandria with his teaching. But Rome as well in the Western uh, texts. Um, Valentinian Gnosticism is a complex theological system blending Greek Platonic philosophy with Christianity. In this system, you have the primal father, or byth- Bythos, projected, projecting 30, 30, I say 30, but I think it's 13, maybe it's 30, a- aeons, uh, which are sexually compatible pairs. These are sub deities under under the Father. Um, the youngest of the Aeons is Sophia. Uh, she becomes the mother of the Demiurge. The Demiurge is the god of the Old Testament. Okay, so three levels down, you got the you got the Father, and then you have the the Aeons, and then you have the Demiurge, which is the Old Testament God. He creates the material world. How wh- how is this sounding like Gnosticism? Well. Remember, the Gnostics thought the material world was evil and the spiritual realm, the metaphysical realm, was good and pure. So anything touching the material world could not be God. It has to be a couple layers of deity down before uh, it creates God. So you have the Demiurge, who created the material world. The material universe is seen as evil. Sophia then, out of passion for the First Father, Bythos conceives the Christ um, or uh, Jesus. Valentinia, the Valentinian Gnostic beliefs this is, page, this is from page 140 of Letus believe the Son never came, comes to earth the Son of God never comes to earth never becomes incarnate but is always at the bosom of the Father. The, so when you hear the phrase Son of God They don't believe, the Gnostics did not believe the Son of God came to earth. The Son is not the Logos. There's a distinction there in their their system. The Logos enters the material world to communicate the Father and the Son. But the Logos is not the Son. The name of the Father, um, specifically, they consider the the name of Father to be, um, should not be spoken. It's like a super secret code word. So only the initiates were allowed to be given the, the, the name of the Father. And the name of the Father was Son of God. Okay? And that was not to be spoken in public. If, if you're a Gnostic, you should not say the word Son of God in public. Uh, see how messed up this is. I mean, we're getting into the, in, in the, into the, uh, yeah, the ugliness of this. Um, according to Irenaeus and Clement... Monogenes Theos readings were, were used by the Valentinians So the Theos reading um, Monogenes Theos Was preferred by the Arians Because they found uh, They were fond of saying that Jesus Was the only begotten God And brought, that brought Attention to um, The derived existence of, uh, of Jesus In other words he was a crea- he was Begotten um, Means that he was made um, he was the first creation. Athanasius never used monogenes monogenes theos. He always, when he translated First John or John one, he always used Uios. Okay, so that was the Orthodox reading Uyos, and theos was the uh, Valentinian reading. Um, so here we we see that this text, the character of the critical text is leaning toward Valentinian Gnosticism. But let's read more. Let's go on to John chapter 6, verse 68 to 69. Uh, the New King James reads But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So here we have Son of God, right? What do the Gnostics not like to say in public? Son of God. So what did they change it to? The Holy One of God. So Simon Peter, you are the, you have the words of God, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This alteration comes from Papyrus 75. Dr. Hills points out that the eternal evidence does not support this at all. First, it would have Peter saying two different statements to Jesus uh, since the alteration differs from Matthew sixteen sixteen, so here he's saying basically in Matthew, um, the uh, Peter is saying you're the Son of God, but um, but in in John you're saying you're the Holy One of God. Um, since uh, uh, so, secondly, the other gospel. Uh, this is a quote from uh, from Hills in the other gospels only demons address jesus as the holy one of god he then goes on to state and if chosen one of god is a false reading in john 134 then it is surely reasonable to conclude that holy one of god is a false reading in john 669 both readings are used as substitutes for the reading son of god and both seem to be supported by the same class of documents the gnostic the Gnostic papyri discovered in 1945 at Nag Hammadi in Egypt seemed to indicate that in these 2nd century heretics regarded the term son of God as a mystic name which should not be pronounced except by the initiated. And so it, w- it may have been they who introduced these substitutes, chosen one of God and holy one of God, into the text of John. Um, That's from page 175 of of Hills. This alteration matches exactly with what Letus tells us about Valentinian Gnosticism. They were very prone to John and Mark, for example, uh, also, as they had all of their initiates read it from the name of, uh, read it and the name of the Father, specifically Son of God, was not to be spoken so the phrase "Christ, the Son of the Living God" would have been stated a statement incomprehensible to them. How could the Logos, Christ, who have entered the material world, be equated with the Son of God, who always remained with the Father? Okay. Now we turn on to Mark one one. New King James says the um, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, the ESV just footnotes this because in, in Sinaiticus, um, it omits the, the, the phrase, the whole phrase is just taken out, Son of God. Sometimes, uh, sometimes alternate readings from the critical text are put in footnotes um, and uh, Sinaiticus omits uh, Son of God. In the Gnostic system, Son of God and Jesus Christ were two different persons. So they would, they would have found this phrase very disagreeable. Uh, Luke 23, 42, uh, New King James says, Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember the thief on the cross? He referred to Christ as what? Lord, curios. Okay. Um, and the ESV says, And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, not very many people pick up the significance of that. But if you know Gnosticism, what do you know about what happened to the Logos before the crucifixion? Before the crucifixion, the Logos ascended into heaven. So his spirit left him, and there was just nothing but a human um, shell okay, in the Gnostic system. And so for even to this, they, they felt it, a need to correct this. They would never have considered that, um, that Christ... Uh, would be considered, uh, you know, divine when he was hanging on the cross. Um, I mean, that completely destroys the gospel. Uh, This is what uh, Hill says. But according to the Alexandrian text, um, Papyrus 75, Aleph, which is um, uh, Sinaiticus, uh, B, which is Vaticanus, C and L, and the Syriac, the thief said, Jesus, remember me, when thou comest in thy kingdom modern critics insist that this later reading is the original one but it is, is this but is this at all a reasonable hypothesis the dying thief recognized jesus as the messianic king he is praying to him the thief on the cross is praying to, to jesus for pardon and mercy would it be at all natural for the thief to address his new found king rudely and familiarly as Jesus? Surely not surely he must have commanded commenced his dying prayer with the ev- evocative Lord in the Alexandrian text. This prayer has been tampered with by the doscisists Docists who believe that the divine Christ returned to heaven just before the crucifixion, leaving only the human Jesus to suffer and die. In accordance with this belief, they made the thief address the Lord, the Savior, not as Lord, but as Jesus. Now we turn to John 3.13. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who has come down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And the ESV says, this. Uh, Um, who has descended from heaven, the son of man. Uh, They take out the phrase, who is in heaven. Here, Dr. Hills pointed out the Alexandrian text, um, Papyrus 66, 75, Aleph and B, which is Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, leave out who is in heaven by saying the mutilation of the, uh, he says, the mutilation of the sacred text ought also no doubt to be charged to heretics hostile to the deity of Christ. And then John chapter 9, verse 35, says this, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of God? And in the ESV, it says, Son of Man. Um, Here, both Western and Alexandrian texts differ from the traditional text and the Old Latin versions. Very probable, he says, quote, quote, very probable it represents an attempt as on the part of the heretics to lower Christ's claim to deity. And then Romans 14.10, New King James says, But why do you judge your brother? For why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of what Christ. Um, Why do you pass, and then ESV substitutes Christ for God. The traditional, and this is uh, from uh, Hills again, the traditional text speaks of the judgment seat of Christ, implying that Christ is that Jehovah spoken of in Isaiah 45:23, to whom every knee shall bow. The traditional reading is also found in Polycarp, Tertullian, and Marcion. But the Western and Alexandrian texts, represented by Aleph B, um, D2, etc., have take, take away this testimony to Christ's deity by substituting judgment seat of God for judgment seat of Christ. They replace the seat of Christ with the seat of God. It is difficult to believe that this substitution was also made by was not also made by heretics. And then we turn to First um, Timothy three sixteen. The first part of this verse. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the, manifested in the flesh. And ESV says, He was manifested in the flesh. Okay. Hills says this, Undoubtedly, the traditional reading, God was manifest in the flesh, was the original... Um, was the original reading. This was altered by the Gnostics into the Western reading, which was manifest in the flesh, in order to emphasize their favorite idea of mystery. Then this Western uh, reading was later changed into the meaningless Alexandrian reading, who was manifest in the flesh. Okay, what's the problem with that, grammatically speaking? If if it says instead of he was manifested in the fest, if it says who was manifest, uh, who was manifest in the flesh grammatically, how does that a problem? It doesn't agree with the mystery. Yeah, right. It doesn't agree with the mystery. Mystery is a statement, is a complete statement. Okay, so he's saying. Great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness, and here's the mystery: God was manifest in the flesh. But their mystery is an incomplete sentence. <laughs> there is there is no predicate, or there's no subject to the sentence. Who is manifest in the flesh? Which they had to, uh, they had to monkey with the translation to make it make it work. Okay. So, if they accurately translated the Sinaiticus into, from Greek into English, it would just say who is manifest in the flesh. But they changed it to he, okay, so that it would grammatically make sense. So, what are they saying there? By, by making that translation, they're admitting that there's a grammatical error in the Greek in Sinaiticus, okay? uh, Hill says this, the change, therefore, that the translators felt compelled to make from who to he comes as a belated admission that the reading who was manifest in the flesh cannot be interpreted satisfactorily and still be grammatically correct. Okay, so uh, then we turn on to um, Mark chapter 19, verses 16 to 17. Now, this one does not have a Gnostic reading. Uh, necessarily Um, well sort of it's a it's a it's a philosophical Greek philosophy reading Um, the the new King James King James remember the uh, the rich young ruler comes to Christ and and he says you know this is in the dialogue about uh, he's curious about what what is he wanting to know from Christ he's wanting to know how to enter into the kingdom of heaven right right they they totally screw this up, and th- and this was apparently a text they love to the philosophize about because, um, uh, anyways, so New King James says, how now behold, one came and said to him, good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So Jesus is addressing his question here. Um, He sticks the law on him because he didn't understand how how he was uh, in need of Christ. Um, And he needed the law to bring him down uh, to understand his complete lack of righteousness before God. But um, ESV says this, why do you ask me about what is good? What? Ask me about what is good. You know, he doesn't say that. Why do you call me good? Um, qu- uh, quotes of the traditional text reading for this passage can be found in the early church fathers as early as the second century Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Hippo- Hippolytus. Um, Dr. Hills explains the perversion of the Western and Alexandrian texts in the following way. The Western and Alexandrian reading, Why askest thou me concerning the good, was a curiously unbiblical ring. It does not savor of God, but of men. It smacks of the philosophy of pseudo-philosophy, which was common among the Hellenized Gentiles, but was probably little known in the strictly Jewish circles in which these words are represented as having been spoken. In short, the Western and Alexandrian reading why askest thou me concerning the good? Reminds us strongly of the interminable discussions of the philosophers concerning the summit bonum, the highest good. See, the summit bonum was like a... That was a topic the, the Greek philosophers loved to debate about what is good. What is the good? you know. Um, how could Jesus have reproved the young man for inviting him to, to such a discussion? when it was clear that the youth had in no wise done this, but had come to him concerning the ent- entirely different matter, namely the obtaining of eternal life. It is surely very likely that this reading, rendolent as it is of Greek wisdom, originated among the Gnostics' heretics of a pseudo-philosophical sort. The second century Gnostic teacher Valentinus and his disciples heracleon and Ptolemius are known to have philosophized much on Matthew 19, verse 17. And it could easily have been one of these three who made this alteration in the sacred text. Whoever it was, no doubt, he no doubt revised this reading in order to give the passage a more philosophical appearance. Evidently, he attempted to model the conversation of Jesus with the rich young ruler, rich young man into a Socratic dialogue. Remember the Socratic teaching method? You don't, do, you don't teach your students anything, you just ask them questions. And, and, and you know, to get them to think critically of themselves through the issue, and which is not a bad teaching style. Sometimes you do need, you know, you can learn a lot by asking a good question. Um, but you can see that this is a, the Socratic method uh, creeping into the text, the, full, the, full, the Greek philosophy. Um, then we have the Lord's Prayer, uh, which we recite every every day, um, or uh, not every day, uh, every Sunday. Mark six thirteen, and the the end of the prayer is just taken out. For yours is the kingdom of heaven and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Most modern critics reject the the last part of this verse, regarding it as a Jewish prayer formula that was added later dr hills points out that this is unlikely the case this seems and this is from his page 193 this seems however a more a most improbable way to account for the conclusion of the lord's prayer for it is the early christians that held, that felt the need of something which would pro- provide a smoother ending of to his, this familiar prayer Would they deliberately have selected for that purpose a Jewish prayer formula in which the name of Jesus does not appear? Even a slight study of the New Testament reveals the difficulty of this hypothesis. For if there was on one thing in which the early Christians were united, it was in their emphasis on the name of Jesus. Converts were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Miracles were performed in this name, and by his name alone was salvation possible. In other words, he's saying, if this was an addition by the early Christians, like they, the the author just kind of broke into prayer, if, uh, or conclusion, like concluded the prayer, it would have added the name, in the name of Jesus, or something like that. So the evidence that it doesn't say that is proof alone that this passage really was Jesus' words. Um, The doxology occurs in five manuscripts of the Old Latin, in the Sahidic and in the Extent Syriac versions. Normally, the agreement of the three group of ancient witnesses from the three separate regions would be regarded as an indication of genuineness of the reading of which they thus agree. Um, That's a quote from Hills, uh, page 148. Hills also mentions a quote, of the passage of the didact, of the didactic of the twelve apostles from the first and and the uh, half of the second century, so this has very very early witnesses, um, is what he's saying. And then we turn to John chapter nine seven verse fifty three to eight chapter eight uh, verse eleven, uh, which is the the uh, passage of the woman taken adultery. It is double bracketed in the ESV with the following footnote: Some manuscripts do not include chapter seven, verse fifty-three through chapter eight, verse eleven, and others add the passage here uh, or after seven thirty-six, or after twenty-one twenty-five, or after Luke twenty-one thirty-eight, with variations in the text. This is because it is, and that's that's the footnote um, that they bracket it with. This is because it is omitted from the Alexandrian text. Hills explains why. It is not surprising that the Pericope adulterae, or the passage about adult, the adulterer is omitted in Papyrus 66 and 75 Aleph, which is Sinaiticus and B, which is Vaticanus W and L. For all these manuscripts are connected with the Alexandrian tradition, which habitually favored omissions. When one Montanus mat- or some other extreme group had begun to leave the, stor- leave the story of the adulteress out of their copies of the John- John's Gospel. The ascetic tendencies of the early church were such that the practice would spread rapidly, especially in Egypt, and produce such a si- situation where we find among the Greek manuscripts. And Augustine even describes the revision of the manuscripts by the, quote, enemies of the true faith. He's, uh, this is, again, Hills, According to Augustine, It was moralistic objection to the pericope Adultera, which was responsible for its omission in some of the New Testament manuscripts known to him. Certain persons of little faith, he wrote, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives be given impunity in sinning, removed from their manuscript the Lord's act of forgiveness toward the adulteress, as if he who had said sin no more had granted permission to sin. So here we have an early witness, Augustine, even claiming to us that people were ripping it out of their Bibles. Um, and, uh, and so, um, because they, they had a, a problem with the radical forgiveness of Jesus Christ for this adulteress. And then, famously, the last one I'm going to end on is the end of Mark, chapter, uh, the, the last part of Mark, chapter um, 16, verse 9 to 20, is omitted. This passage is also double-bracketed in the ESV with notes that cast doubt upon the text. The modern, critical, the modern textual critic shows remarkable disbelief in the scriptures to think that Mark would end the gospel on a note of fear. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Would you end a gospel like that? If you, um, if you were writing the gospel and all this all about Jesus is a wonderful story. But they were uh, in fear and they, they told nobody, no one. The original, this is uh, Hills, the original Gospel of Peter. Did, did you guys hear that? Does anybody have a Gospel of Peter? <laughs> no, that's because um, it was written in 150 AD by a Docetic heretic. Uh, denied the reality of Christ's sufferings and consequently the reality of his human body. This false view is seen in the account which this. Ap- Uh, apocryphal writing gives of christ's crucifixion in the gospel of mark the old latin new testament manuscripts k gives a heretical docetic account uh, docetic account of the resurrection of christ similar to that found in the apocryphal gospel of peter so instead of taking it out in k manuscript k which is they put in a they put in a gnostic reading It generally believed by scholars that K represents an early form of the Old Latin version, which, like the Gospel of Peter, dates from the 2nd century. If this is so, the fact that K agrees with the Gospel of Peter in giving a docetic account of the resurrection of Christ indicates that Irenaeus was correct in pointing out a special connection between the Gospel of Mark and Docetism. This ancient father observed that docetic heretics, quote, who separate Jesus from Christ, alleging that Christ remained incapable of suffering, but that it was Jesus who suffered, preferred the Gospel of Mark. In Mark 16, then, the Old Latin K contains a text which has been tampered with by the docetic heretics who, like the author of the apocryphal Gospel of Peter, denied the reality of Christ's sufferings and his human body. And this same K also omits the the last 12 verses Uh, Verses of Mark and substitutes it in their place with the so-called short ending, which omits the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. Um, So um, the ending of Mark uh, is very suspect. Um, Obviously, they do not want um, uh, to, to look at a physical bodily ascension and resurrection. Um, uh, because that, that is evil, the body is evil, it's to be left in the grave. Um, Christ's body is still there, according to the Gnostics. Well, not there anymore, de- decomposed, but anyways, um, they did not believe in a resurrection. So my conclusions are this. I have provided ten examples of texts with the critical texts where there is clear evidence of Gnostic amend- amendation. We have also uh, taken a look at two other important passages, the Lord's Prayer and the Pericope D'Adultra or the passage of the adulteress that bear evidence of alteration. Some of these alterations cause grammatical issues, thereby showing through internal evidence they are not God-breathed. Some bear historical witnesses like Augustine of alteration. However, they are all kept on the basis that oldest is best. Despite the evidence that suggests Codex Vaticanus and Psydeicus are late forgeries. I hope this review has given you a clearer picture of the character of the critical text and the importance of this issue. James White, a supporter of the critical text, says this, The simple fact of the matter is that no textual variants in the Old and New Testament in any way, shape, or form materially disrupt or destroy any essential doctrine of the Christian faith. This is a fact that any semi-impartial uh, review will substantiate. That's from James White, the King James-only controversy. Can we trust modern versions? And Letus has an entire appendix in here that basically just is a review of uh, James White's statements. And uh, I was going to quote from that, but he basically destroys that and says, no, there is a ton of doctrine doctrinal differences. In fact, the whole... You know the whole deity of christ and the resurrection is at as at stake if you take it out on mark and remember Uh critical text Uh, you know textual critics say all the other gospels were based on mark then Then that gives them the, the door to say all of, all of the gospels Added the resurrection and we have no supernatural resurrection um, so I agree with Erman, the agnostic who um Uh, He wrote, basically, a whole paper saying that this has major doctrinal uh, ramifications. I agree with the Gnostic. This is probably the only place I agree with Ehrman, (laughs) that we are not only contending for the very words of scriptures, we are also contending for the faith in doing so. Um, Docetist confessed that Jesus Christ was not come in the flesh. Will we... Allow the spirit of the Antichrist to infect our Bibles should we feed our flocks with the spirit of the Antichrist. I pray not. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your providential preservation of the scriptures that we can trust that your word of God has been preserved. It has been preserved among your people and that you have given us um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the sweet gospel of of Jesus Christ dying in our place, rising from the grave. We look forward to hearing your word preached this morning. We pray that you would bless this day in Jesus' name. Amen.